It's so good to be here with my New Hope family. Um, this is so good. I look forward. This is one of my favorite weeks of the year. We, uh, we come by. Um, if you'd like to follow actual Bible, we're going to be in the book of Titus uh, in the New Testament here in just a second. Um, it, this is going to be one of those sermons where I'm going to read the scripture at the end. Uh, you'll, you'll, see, you'll see why. Um, in just a second. As always, we do have our resource table set up out there um, in USBs, videos, and audios. Uh, the reason we do that is because we live with a conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. And so 100% of what we make from that, we give away to the poor and the afflicted. We have several new things since the last time I was here. Specifically, I've, I've got a, uh, um, I, church leaders were asking me to deal with the topic of sex and sexuality. And so I just finished three weeks ago an 11-part series Series on that. It's, it's out there. Um, somebody came to me, somebody came to the table a couple weeks ago and said, how do you talk for 11 sessions on that? And I'm like, it's not a technique manual, right? This is, that, that would be, that would be four minutes long. It's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's a, it's, it's a thing about how spirituality and sexuality and disconnection and connection work. And so you can uh, pick that up. We also, this is the first time I've had this. I just completed the Revelation series where we talked about the letters to the seven churches. And I'm answering the question, where does the church go from here? And so you can, um, you can pick that up out there as well in knowing that you're helping us minister to the poor and the afflicted. Just one piece of housekeeping. I'd like to take a second and authentically invite you guys back to the services tonight, Monday and Tuesday. If you're not familiar with those, um, we, we at New Hope and Shane Willard totally honors your time, okay? We realize it's a work night. We also realize it's an act of faith if you're over 40 to do anything outside after seven, okay? I understand. I get it, okay? I'm 46. We don't do things outside after seven. What are we, lunatics, right? So, um, but if you'll give us, if you give us an hour um, each of those nights, um, I promise you it'll be helpful, effective, it'll change your life. If not, um, I'll, I'll pay you back for whatever they charge you to come, okay? So whatever the ticket costs, I'll pay, I'll give it back to you. So it's totally a risk-free uh, sort of thing. So my job today is to open the Bible, and I want to take a second and address our brothers and sisters from New Hope and around the world that might be joining us online, Okay. Hi, my, my, my name's Shane, and um, my, I'm, I'm part of the New Hope family here, and my job is to open the scripture today. And I take that really, really seriously. And I'm so glad and honored to be in your living room or wherever you might be watching this, maybe around a table um, with some friends. And so anytime I open the scripture, I want a couple things to happen. I, I want Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, the resurrection to be central, and scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. I, I hope that's your experience today, because when you look at scripture, you got to ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And two, more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? And so as we explore the scriptures today, I hope that is your experience for you wherever you are and for everybody here live. Now, I, I, have, a, I have a certain conviction about what I'm going to talk about today. I think it's really, really important. As churches are opening back up with minimal restrictions, we're coming out of a season of lots of distraction and inconsistency. I think it's really, really important at this moment that we reground what we are about. The word is, I want to recapture this morning the beauty of the word Christian. Because the word Christian, I fear, has been hijacked by things it's not. Because words don't matter. How we picture words working matters. And so when we say the word Christian in our community, that doesn't matter. What matters is what the people in our community picture that word to be. Like what are, who are the Christians? And let me tell you what they're not. 
Christians are not climate experts. They're not. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you understand climate. There are climate experts. They're called climate scientists. Christians are not medical experts. They're not. There are medical experts in our world. They're called doctors. They, they went to school for seven years and then did a supervised practicum for three in order to practice on human beings. They're medical experts. Christians aren't experts on sex. We're not. Obviously. Hello. We're not experts on those things. Well, actually, Christians aren't really meant to be experts in theology. We're not meant to be amateur theologians. There are some good theologians in the world. Tim Keller, David DeSilver, Dr. Brad Jerzak, N.T. Wright. Leave it with them. Christians are not meant to be those things, nor are Christians supposed to be known for the people who go somewhere else when they die. See, words don't matter. How we picture words work, it matters. And I'm hearing a word a lot that gets thrown around, deconstruction. It's normally by people under 30. I'm deconstructing my faith. Here's how that conversation goes, right? And look, some deconstruction I'm all for, because really what they mean when you talk to them is we're repenting. We're rethinking, but that's not deconstruction. That's actually art restoration where you have this fine piece of art of how Jesus taught us to see the world and along the way it picked up some dirt and some grime and we're gonna take a scalpel and carefully remove what should be removed. If that's what you mean, I am all for that. But this is how the conversation goes. I don't, you got a 28-year-old person telling their 58-year-old parents in a panic state, I don't wanna be a Christian anymore. And the parents panic, right? And then they say, talk to Shane, right? And then I sit down with them and they're like, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. And I'm like, well, why? And it's always, I've never heard a different answer than this. I just don't think I believe those things anymore. To which I just simply ask, what is it you were told you had to believe to follow Jesus? And you know what I found? Not one time yet has it had anything to do with Jesus. It has to do with some marginalized thing they saw or some verse that somebody pointed out or some, it has nothing to do with Jesus. See, see, Christianity has, has a certain imagination of how that word works. There's, there's, there's one way, if we could bring that first slide up, that, that, that Christ, the word Christian is belief in order to go somewhere else. Like the idea that it's all about someday, someday the lion and the lamb, someday no more pain, someday no more crying. Okay, yes, but that's not the basis of Christianity. I affirm that. Chris Mulher affirms that. The ACC affirms that. But if that's all it is, think about it. If the whole world converted to the type of thought that it doesn't matter how we live here, all it's all about going somewhere else, the world would not be a better place. And that's actually not how Jesus framed it. Jesus framed his movement as allow heaven to be so established in you here that when you do walk into heaven, when you die, you don't get whiplash. It's already established. Inside of, it was about a different way of living in the world. So I'm going to give you a real rapid fire. This is going to be Christianity 101 because as churches reopen and we've been filled with distractions and our cousin Earl's 70 YouTube clips they've sent us about conspiracy theories and all the problems with ScoMo and Palestine. Listen, we need to come back to what Christianity actually is and restore the beauty of that word. Christianity simply stated, next slide is this, is being salt and light in the world by three ways. One, seeing the world how Jesus saw the world. Two, seeing God how Jesus saw God. And three, and most importantly, applying scripture how Jesus applied scripture. 
one singular verse in Leviticus is not our final authority for all matters of faith and practice. And it shouldn't be, unless you're prepared to kill your neighbor for working on Saturday. Unless you're prepared to stone adulterers. Unless you're, unless you're prepared to throw all your clothes away that's made of mixed cloth. No, it's not the verse itself. It's how Jesus applied that scripture. The way Jesus applied scripture, the way Jesus saw God and the way Jesus saw the world, that's what Christianity is. Now let, let's do a rapid fire sort of review of those three things. H how did Jesus see the world? See, I would say that if the whole world converted to how Jesus saw the world, the world would be a better place. See, Jesus saw the world in this revolutionary way with no class systems. Like in Jesus's world, there was a nine layered class system in the Roman Empire. I could name them all, but let's just go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And it was legal for class two people to abuse class eight people because they were less human, less in the image of God in that day, Caesar, than the class two people. Jesus saw the world different than that. He's like, whoa, whoa, no, 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 no. There's one God holding the whole thing together. You can't treat women worse than men just because they're women. You can't treat black people worse than white people because they have color in their skin. That's dumb. You can't treat poor people worse than rich people because there's one God holding the entire thing together. And if that's true, then you have to treat everybody honoring the image of God in that person. There's no clean or unclean. Religious, politically, there was class systems. Religiously, there was this idea in, the, in Judaism of clean and unclean, us and them, in and out. Rather, one God redeeming the whole broken thing. Like God doesn't see you as his enemy. He's willing to engage your broken story where your broken story is and, in, in order to make a better narrative around it. Jesus never framed things by who is worthy. He always framed things by who is thirsty, who wants it. Jesus's way of seeing the world is, is let's forget the class systems. Let's forget the clean and unclean. It's not producing what it promised. Let's forget all of that. And here's the deal. Whoever wants whatever God wants for their life, the God I fully and finally reveal is willing to engage that person and give them a full version of the Holy Spirit, just like you were told it was only available to the high class elite. Jesus saw the world in a revolutionary way. And the one common theme through all of Jesus's teachings was if someone fully surrenders to the way Jesus saw the world, they would look around and always live for the betterment of people who can't do anything in return for them. That they prioritize the marginalized, they prioritize the poor. When we think about policies, when Christians think about public policy, the thought should not be, how does that affect my freedom? What? The problem when Christians think about public policy, it is how does that policy enrich the whole community? That yes, freedom is important, but freedom must be submitted to the higher ethic of love, that we live for the betterment of the other person, specifically people who can do anything in return for us. Now, I, I want us to think for a second. If somebody came to you and said, and they were nice about it, they just were curious, and they said, listen, my problem with Christianity is that if the whole world saw the world that way, the world would not be better. Wouldn't we agree that if the whole world converted to our way of thinking, if the world's not better, there's a hole in our thinking? But I would say it's not what Christianity is. It's how Christianity unfortunately has been presented most of the time by Christians. Christianity doesn't need enemies 
presenting itself as a toxic way to think about things. Christians do that job for us with social media and the internet. But let's put all that distraction aside and just look at this slide for a second and let's have a Selah moment. If the whole world saw the world that way, would the world not be a better place? I would say it would be essential that the Christian and the body of Christ function in Toowoomba and wherever you're watching this in the world is to think about the world this way and it would be a better place. Right, let's, now let's talk about how Jesus saw God. How Jesus saw God was that God was at work in everywhere and everyone, not just in a specific place at a specific time on elite people. That God is involved in your story and your story and your story. And he's not judging you, condemning you, criticizing you or shaming you. He's wanting to use his creative energies to engage your broken story right where your broken story is and make a better narrative out of it. That was a beautiful way to see God. Jesus never saw God as existent. Like, and look, I'm not mad at, look, if somebody says God exists, I'm not mad. I'm not, that's a dumb statement. God does not exist. And listen, I'm not mad. What they're trying to say is God is real. Please just say it that way. But God absolutely does not exist. Absolutely not. The reason is, is because for something to exist, it has to be an object outside of you. So this microphone exists. And if I can figure out how to make it work for me, namely making things easier on my voice and easier on your ears, then this microphone will serve me. That's not God. And actually the first century Christians were killed by the Roman emperor Trajan and the charge was atheism. The reason is the Roman governors asked the first century Christians, where does your God exist? Meaning, where's his temple? Where's his image? Where are people paying offerings so we could get our cut? And the first century Christians said, our God does not exist. Our God insists, our God indwells. There's one God holding the whole thing together. And why does that matter? Well, it matters because an existent God can choose sides. An existent God can say, I'm for them and not for them. An existent God can sit above it and go, men should be treated better than women. An existent God can sit above it and go, white should be treated better than blacks. An existent God can do that, but not an indwelling spirit. An indwelling spirit holding the whole thing together means that everybody is carrying the image and likeness of God and everybody's being held together. And you can't treat people poorly without violating that. I would say that's a beautiful way to see the world. Number three, since God is at work always, since God is at work in the world, always participate and cooperate with him, never manipulate. What a beautiful way to posture ourselves to the yes response to what God is up to in our world. It's not sitting on our butt waiting to go to heaven when we die. That's boring. Like if, if, if your whole faith is I'm sitting on my butt waiting to go to heaven when I die, that's just frankly boring. Unless you're 107. Like if you're 107, you can wait to go to heaven when you die. It's coming quickly, right? But if you're not 107, that means you woke up today with infinite possibilities. Jesus had this way of seeing God that I, I find so beautiful and I'm working really hard to work this way into my life. He had this phrase he used all the time, let him who has ears, let him hear. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus had such a profound faith in God's work in the world and God's up to something in you and in you and you and in you and in you that he never, even Jesus Christ himself, never wanted to overstep what God was up to in the person. He would say things like, if I can't see the father up to something, I don't want to engage that, right? And this really meant, one time it says he was preaching to 5,000 people. It's a Jewish way of saying a lot of people, right? A packed crowd. And it says that by the end of the sermon, everybody walked out. 
Whoo, that is rejection. Hey, I have never, I've had one sort of isolated sort of person have a problem with me. I've never had a whole room do a standing protest and just walk it. That would just be bizarre, right? The rejection. And Jesus is sort of irritated and he turns to his disciples and he's like, are you going to leave too? You know, and his disciples don't comfort him really. His disciples, you, you would think the disciples would go, absolutely not. We totally get what you're saying and we are all in, bro. They don't say that. They say, we're not going anywhere because we don't have anywhere else to go. <laughs> Which is kind of, that, that, that's, like, that's kind of like your wife asking you, why did you marry me? And your only answer is, well, the other chick was ugly, you know? So it, like, it's sort of like, oh, that's really disconcerting, right? And he says, they, they say, well, we, we're not going anywhere. We, we're, we don't have anywhere else to go. But we don't mean to be Johnny Raincloud here, but they didn't buy what you were selling. And Jesus says, I know. But if the Father hasn't moved their heart to hear what I was saying, who am I to try to convince them? Now that is a, I, so 10 times a day now I'm doing this meditation where I stop and take a deep breath and go, let him who has ears. So if somebody's not ready to hear what I'm saying, it is not my job to convince them. Do, do you know how much energy that is? Oh God. You know how much energy that would save us if we just resisted the default mechanism to argue and prove our point? I'm 46 years old. I'm at least of average intelligence. I have never once been able to move someone who started with their conclusion. If someone starts with their flag in the ground, let them have their flag in the ground and save the two hours of your breath that you, this is how Jesus saw God. What a profound way to see the world, to see God. Let's look at this slide for a second and have a Selah moment. What, what if the whole world converted to that way of looking at God? Wouldn't the world be a better place? I, I would say it would. Let, let, let's talk, talk about the third way. How did Jesus apply scripture? It's how Jesus saw the world, how Jesus saw God, and how Jesus applied scripture. And all the deconstruction talk I've ever come across, I've never had anybody deconstructing these three things. I've never had anybody go, I think the way Jesus saw the world was off. I've never had anybody go, I, I think the way Jesus saw God needs some improvement. I've never had anybody go, you know what, the way Jesus, I've had lots of people have a problem with one specific verse. And when you look at the verse, they should have a problem with that verse. But I've never, ever had somebody have a problem with how Jesus applied the scriptures. Jesus applied scripture never statically. Jesus did not see the Bible as a static record of God. He saw the scriptures as a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of what people thought God was, leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. Here's the entire New Testament in one statement. God was like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. And here are the implications of that. He always, re he, his way of applying scripture always revealed more of the love of God. Remember they bring him someone caught in the act of adultery and they ironically had a verse that said to stoner. And remember how Jesus applied it? Does he stoner? No, because the God revealed in Christ loves people more than whatever the rule said. God, the way Jesus applied scripture is God loves people. God always loves people more than the rules. God always, yeah, you can find some rule somewhere, fine. But God always loves people more than the rules. And he called us to fulfill scripture instead of being right about one verse about it. And to fulfill scripture was don't obsess about being right about it. Obsess about fulfilling scripture, which was to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But Shane, what about this? Do unto others as you would have. Shane, do you know what they do? I do. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Let's have a look at this slide and have a Selah moment here. What if the whole world converted to that way of engaging scripture? 
would the world not be better? So the idea of, well, if the whole world converted to Christianity, it wouldn't be a better place. That might be true if the version of Christianity that person was exposed to was toxic. But if we just simply got back to how Jesus saw the world, how Jesus saw God and how Jesus applied scripture, I would say it's not only making the world a better place, I would say it's essential to a fair, dignified society. See, what happens is, is when people say deconstruction, that sounds like demolish, right? But what if the way Jesus saw the world, the way, Je can, can we stop for a second and have just this moment of agreement that the way Jesus saw the world, the way Jesus saw God and the way Jesus applied scripture is frankly a beautiful way to live, right? Let, let's call that a fine piece of art. But over time, it picked up some grime. Of course it did, why? Because humans are involved. We tend to do things like this. And then somebody says, you know what? Someone down the road goes, you know what? I don't think Jesus, I don't think the way you're talking about that topic has anything to do with how Jesus saw the world, how Jesus saw God, how Jesus applied scripture. And so there's two ways to do it. We can take a bulldozer to the whole thing, which I would definitely not recommend. Or we could take a scalpel and we could go, you know what? We're gonna carefully get that one little piece of grime off without hurting the thing underneath it. There's all these profound concepts in scripture and how Jesus applied it that have gotten a piece of dirt on it. Like, like, like let me give you two examples um, about how words work. First, let's talk about the word righteousness. Like, like if I was to say to you, and you should agree with this, that the Christian movement should be filled with righteous and holy people, right? Pretty obvious, right? Like how many times does Paul address people as saints, the righteous ones, the holy? Yes, we should be righteous and holy. So why is that not compelling? If I was to say, I wanna talk for the rest of this time about the word righteous and about the word holy, somebody would rightly go, what are you trying to kill a party? Like, what are you talking about, right? But it's not because of the words, it's because of how the words work in people's minds because of the bit of grime that got picked up on it. So, so, so the word righteous, if I was to say, Jesus called us to be a righteous group of people, yes. But what does that word even mean? So, so, so the etymology of the word righteous is in pictures. All ancient Hebrew is pictures. And the etymology of the word righteous is, um, there's a fish hook with bait on it. So there's three pictures. It's a fish hook with bait on it, an open door, and then a humble person, somebody that's lowly, somebody that's on the edges, right? So the etymology of the word righteous is, is you wake up every day being lured to help the plight of the humble. That every day you wake up going, how can I make somebody else's life better? Hey, where are the infinite possibilities to do good in my world and change those people's lives? Where are those opportunities? There are 2,106 verses in scripture that tie righteousness to generosity. As a matter of fact, the word righteousness in Hebrew is sadak. The word generous is sadaka. It's the same word. In other words, you can't be righteous and not be making somebody else's life better. Righteousness was the generous. Righteousness was defined by waking. It wasn't defined by being perfect. It wasn't defined by things we don't do. It was defined by waking up with the intention in our heart to make somebody else's life better. But then that word got on a container ship and it went through time. And it picked up different connotations and pictures and metaphors and certain people won wars and certain people lost wars. And when your society loses the war, that word becomes a swear word and then other connotations get in. So from, you know, I don't know, 1500 BC to, I don't know, 1950 in America, by the time you get to 1950 in the South in America, righteousness was defined as don't drink, don't smoke, don't go to bad movies, but you could hate black people, that was okay. What a weird sort of society did that create? 
right? How did something as profound as wake up every day, determined to make somebody else's life better, get dumbed down to a list of things you don't do? And we wonder why that got unprofound. Of course it is. It's frankly boring. Like, like, let's say it this way. Righteousness wake up every day, desiring with all your heart to make someone else's life better, not based on what they deserve, but affirming their worth. Imagine living that way. That would be beautiful. We need to reground ourselves in this. Like, so, which leads me to the word, if you just hold that slide for a second, don't, don't move it because I, I want to set up the word holiness for a second. So if I was to say holy, again, that word doesn't matter. It's what you picture. If I say, are you holy? I don't know. Like, like, think about, like, think about when, we, when I say, oh, he's a holy man. What does that even mean? Like, like it, it has all these connotations that aren't in the etymology. The etymology of the word holy in Hebrew is God has set you apart by trusting you with his breath. Anything God trusts with his breath is holy. That's why if you're old enough to remember having a leather Bible, on the outside of the leather Bible, what did it say? Holy Bible. What made that book holy? Pages? No, 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 no. Anything that somebody wrote that God trusted what they wrote with his breath, I need to give that life by breathing on it. The word for that is inspiration, by the way. If I, I, need to, I need to give that thing life by breathing on it. That now is holy. The first thing God breathed on was dirt. And what happened? You, me, we are inspired dirt clods. We are held together by God's breath. And as long as we breathe, we're reminded that God has trusted us with his breath today. And think about it, if we're breathed on dirt, what does that make us? That makes us holy dirt. And if we're holy dirt, what's that make us? That makes us holy ground. Sometimes we're looking for the next piece of holy ground, but we're looking too far. The holy ground is you and me. We're been, we've been trusted with God's breath. A later writer named Paul said, let your life be the epistle for all to read. Live in a way that honors. As essentially, like, now let's talk about the next slide. Essentially, holiness was this. Holiness was God has trusted you with his breath. What are you gonna do about it? How are you gonna live? Hey, you got 24 hours of God's life-sustaining breath as a gift. What are you gonna do? You got two choices. You can honor the gift of God's breath. The word for that is hallowing. Remember Jesus said, hallow be his name. My father who's in the air that I breathe, hallow. Like may, essentially, may I live today in a way that honors the gift of God's breath. Or you can live in a way that you treat it as common. And there's a way you could do that. You could, there's a way you could do nothing wrong and still be profaning the name, the gift of God's breath, because we're treating this holy, sacred moment of life as if it doesn't matter more than the mundane. See, the way Jesus saw the world, the way Jesus saw God, the way Jesus applied scripture, and the way Jesus called us to be a righteous and holy people, I don't just think it would make the world a better place. I think it's essential to accomplishing human dignity I think it's essential to accomplishing compassion. I think it's essential to accomplishing love being the highest ethic that holds all things together. This, in fact, is the hope of the world. And he trusted a group of people called his body to embody that in our world, which requires something profound. It requires a bent to the yes response. The only way to respond to God's gift of breath is to live with your next yes in mind. Waking up, righteousness, I wake up every day to make somebody else's life better. Where's my next yes in that? Holiness is, I've been gifted God's 24 hours of breath today. What am I gonna do about that? What is my next yes? 
And the nature of yes is so important. Bending our life towards the yes response instead of the no response is incredibly essential because yes creates momentum. The yes response creates vision. Like you start saying, you say your one next yes, before you know it, that one next yes doesn't create one new possibility. It creates six, and now you have the ability to dream again, to move again. If you feel a bit stuck, the answer to being stuck is not figuring out your whole path forward. It's just waking up, taking your one next step that you know to do. It's bending our life to the yes response. The next yes is critical. I love the way Paul said it. He said, just as you received Christ, so continue to walk in him. Now, whatever your story is with how you received Christ, here's what I know. It'll all be a little different, but basically we all said yes to Jesus or somehow responded. And Paul said, here's the key to life. Wake up every day, keep responding. Every day saying your next yes. There's a word for this in New Hope. It's called discipleship. There's a word for this in the Christian movement. It's called discipleship. Again, that word doesn't matter. How you picture that word working matters. Maybe you came from a tradition that when they said discipleship, it meant three hours of deep theology teaching. Well, that's not what that is here. This is why at New Hope, we regularly get together and we discuss our journey by journaling. We stay open in our heart to what the Spirit of God might be saying our next yes is, and we determine to obey. It's a simple prayer, clean heart, and a journal. And we sit there and we chat, and, and this is the only way to keep moving forward with the yes response. It's the profundity of discipleship. Here's the problem, and here's why I'm so convicted about why this message this morning is so important. It's because sinful things are not the primary enemy of the Christian movement. It's not. Distractions are. Christians getting caught up in tangential, marginal, distracting things. It, this, is, this is you waking up in the morning saying yes to the infinite possibilities to make someone else's life better. You open your email and it's your cousin Earl sending three YouTube clips about the latest conspiracy theory. And it, is, is it wrong? No. Is it wise? No. Is it helpful? Absolutely not. And then we get distracted about this. Are they lying about climate science? What? Let cli- what? Are they... Hey, did you hear about this public policy? This is, we need to go march about it. What are you talking? Like this, it's not wrong. It's just not wise. And the distractions allow, the distractions allow the word Christian to get hijacked by something really toxic, really toxic. Which leads me to a guy named Paul. And I want to set up the history here and then I want to read. So, So there's a political history here. The political history is there's a Caesar named Nero. Let me quickly, you could, if you just don't do it now, if you Google Nero, you'll, you'll see. Nero was a particular narcissist. He, he made everybody call him my Lord and my God. If you wouldn't do that, um, he would torture you. Uh, he had a specific, um, I don't know, like a ritual that he would do. If you got caught practicing Christianity because they couldn't work out where the temple was so they could take their offerings, he decided to torture those people a certain way. Um, if you got caught by Nero practicing Christianity, he would take a stick and he would impale you into your rectum until you died. And then he would set you upright. He would cover you in tar and use you as a human candlestick to keep his backyard alight, right? Like, listen, If you've ever had the thought, can you believe how bad this world is these days? Please, listen, whatever your problem is with SCOMO, it ain't Nero, 
<laughs> right? The cops aren't coming in here holding you down and running sticks up your butt, right? Like this was a bad time to be alive, right? There, there was also a religious sort of rule in the Asia Minor. It was ruled, there was all these gods, but there was this primary goddess named Artemis. Her temple was one of the eight wonders of the world. Let, let me show you a picture of Artemis. Here, here she is. If you could bring that, that, that picture up. This is uh, Artemis. She was known as she was known as Kibbola uh, to, to, to certain people. She was known as Diana, um, but primary to the Romans, it was called Artemis, same goddess. Um, she was the goddess of the hunt. So, some called her the god of groceries. Like in, in order, in, in order for, for, for you to get food, you had to appease her somehow. I don't want to be rude in any way, but you can just see by looking at her, she had lots of um, uh, nourishment. Um, yep. Like, I mean, because honestly, even when they're 3,500 years old and made of stone, a 20-breasted woman is just awesome. <laughs> and, and, and here was the problem. Um, in order for her to do basic things like getting you food, you had to go to her temple and debase yourself, mutilate yourself, in some, in, in some cases cut parts of your body off to show that as a man you're loyal to her. Um, there were things going on underneath the temple to Artemis, the forced and legal and encouraged assault of lower class, eighth class people by second class people. Like, again, whatever your problem is with Palaszczuk, listen, I get it. I get God's not done redeeming the whole world, but it ain't that, right? And so, and so the Christian community wrote Paul. Titus was leading the Christian community there, and they're like, what? this was the question they were asking. What do we do about oppressive government policies? What do we do? How, how, do we, how do we respond when the government makes a policy that oppresses us? Like they, they're showing up, they're sticking things up. Or like, honestly, it's, a, it's just a nightmare. What do we do about this? And, and Paul writes this incredibly wise advice. This is Paul's advice to how Christians should respond to government policy. And remember, this is Nero. Next slide. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. So that those who've trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves. The word devote yourself is spend 100% of your energy doing something. To devote themselves to doing what is good. For these things are excellent and profitable to everyone. Stop. Let's look at this slide and have a Salem moment. Part of why the word Christian has lost its beauty is because Christians are not devoting themselves to doing good in their world. Are we spending 100% of our energy doing good in our world? That's the question. But he doesn't stop there. Watch what he says. Next slide. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and any arguments and quarrels about the law. <laughs> so the next time your cousin Earl sends you a controversial thing, what do you think about this? Wake up, only the people who can see can see it. The next time that happens, hit reply and just put that in. Part of reason, I'm so passionate about this because I want the word Christian to be beautiful again because I believe it is. 
I believe how Jesus saw the world, how Jesus saw God, how Jesus applied scripture is the most beautiful way to live. But the word Christian has been hijacked by a toxic picture of people getting into conspiracies and controversies and quarrels about the law. Let's just stop and look at this. But avoid, the word avoid means spend no energy on foolish controversies, genealogies, and arguments and quarrels about the law. Not because you're right or wrong about them, but because they're unprofitable and useless. Stop, let's ask a question. How are we doing with that? Not an indictment, I just want you to question. How are we, I, I've started to put this as the header and footer of all my email responses. <laughs> the people who get into arguments and quarrels about policy and about controversies, they tend to be divisive. I've just never seen it go another way. Watch what he says, Paul knew this. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them twice. After that, have nothing to do with them. Defriend them. Stop following their Instagram. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Now, great sermons aren't meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with for application. So let's ask a few questions here. Next slide, one. Where do our imaginations of our beliefs need to be adjusted? I'm not sure our beliefs need to be adjusted so much, more the picture of how they work in the world being adjusted. Like you might have, you might have sort of started sliding into, well, I'm a Christian, man. I need to be the expert on health and politics and climate science and sex. No, you're not. You're not even called to be an expert in the Bible. You're not. You're called to see the world, how Jesus saw the world, how Jesus saw God, how Jesus applied scripture. Listen, if, if you're a jerk, my, my, un, my, my urge to you is stop being a jerk. But for most of us, we're not jerks, but we're affected by jerks. And here's the thing, right? Let me set you free. You don't have to answer every email and watch every YouTube clip the YouTube, YouTube clip that your cousin Earl sends you. You don't. You should wake up every day determined to make somebody else's life better. And if that's getting in the way, stop it. Where do I see the world differently than Jesus? It's worth wrestling with. Is there any way about how Jesus saw the world that I sort of varied from? And I need to take a fine scalpel and get that off. Where, where do I see God differently than Jesus? Have I created another us and them, in and out, clean and unclean? sort of system that Jesus rejected. Let's say it this way, where do I apply scripture differently than Jesus? Am I stuck in some static, like I found this verse. I'm like, well, hang on, finding one verse, what are you talking about? It's how Jesus applied that scripture. Maybe the most important question I'm gonna ask is what is my next yes? Where, do I can, where can I wake up and determine to make somebody else's life better than it was before? What has distracted me from my next yes? Things that distract us are controversies, conspiracies, genealogies, and arguments and quarrels about the law. Those are distracting things. Not necessarily wrong, just not wise, and definitely distracting, and definitely doesn't get us where we wanna go. What has distracted me from my next yes? Number seven, have I succumbed to controversies and quarrels about the law? Maybe the one way that we can all remember today is this one question. God has entrusted me with his breath. What am I gonna do about it? Today, you got 24 hours. This week, you got seven days. You got seven days in this month, you got 28 days. You have a certain amount of time that God has entrusted you with His breath. What are you gonna do about it? You're gonna, you're gonna wake up spending your energy on controversies and quarrels about the law? Or are we gonna wake up saying yes to the infinite possibilities to make somebody else's life better by seeing the world how Jesus saw the world, seeing God how Jesus saw God, and applying scripture how Jesus applied scripture?
my brothers and sisters of New Hope and everybody watching online, may we be part of the solution of restoring the beauty of the word Christian. May the people of Toowoomba, when they think of a word Christian, they think of you. And when they think of you, they think of people waking up every day, devoting themselves to doing good in their world and no energy on foolish controversies and quarrels about the law. May we be the body of Christ in our world. So Lord, give us the courage to see things different, the irresistible urge to respond to what we see. May we be that. Lord, help us do our part to restore the beauty of what it is to be a Jesus sort of people for the hope of the world. Amen. Thanks for letting me be a part of your day. Grace and peace, everybody.